This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballaman, and this is the London FinTech Podcast, episode 241, brought to you in association with Smart and the EnlistedBoard.com. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Naif Abu Saida, CEO and founder of Hakba, a Saudi Arabian cooperative savings platform, brackets, whatever one of those is, we'll hear about that later, brackets, to talk about the fascinating topic of fintech in Saudi Arabia, which has some very unique characteristics. Whilst this year we've talked about fintech in the broader MENA, Middle East and North Africa region, in LFP 227, and Islamic slash Sharia fintech per se in LFP 230, we have not yet zoomed in to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, which is a fascinating blend of ancient tradition with recent liberalisation and a very unique history. In prepping this call with Naif, I found that, as in so many things, Saudi Arabia is little known at the detailed level and is a place that increasingly confounds expectations. It is also innovating in ways not seen elsewhere. Witness Naif's company Hakbar, which we will hear about later. Saudi Arabia is naturally a majorly important country geopolitically, and one that finds itself increasingly bridging the two worlds of, on the one hand, US empire, and on the other, being BRICS' latest member. And as so much of so-called Western monetary and banking infrastructure looks ever more like a giant inverted pyramid. I have always had more than half an eye on solutions for more sanely based mechanisms for financial systems, which will be no doubt needed at some point, which of course has not passed the attention of any of the BRICS countries and the huge waiting line queuing up outside in the street to join BRICS. Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good afternoon, Nave. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Good afternoon, Mike, and thank you for having me. I'm very excited to talk more about Hakba and what's going on in Saudi Arabia FinTech. Excellent. Well, as I was saying, Saudi Arabia is a very interesting place. I mean, my indirect connection with it goes back to the, to the 1980s when a, a colleague or a chap in my department used to cover the whole Middle East region, uh, including Saudi Arabia. And so I heard quite a few tales there. So that's a few decades ago. But... In terms of continuing to confound expectations, we watch a channel, sometimes on YouTube, whenever we want to take our brain out on a Friday evening or something. There's a guy called Drew Binsky who's been all around the world. He's an an American chap. Uh, He's been to every country. And he recently married a Filipino girl. Uh, It's just infotainment-y thing. Entertainment is very light. Um, But interestingly, and I'd never heard about this before, he's Jewish from um, New York and she's a Filipino, and they chose to have their honeymoon in, in Saudi Arabia. Uh, which was (laughs) the kind of to confound expectations. And they absolutely loved the country. And one of the things that that was surprising to me, as well as them choosing that, is that the the geography is completely stunning. They did some trip, I think, west of of Riyadh. And there's this vast plain where there's suddenly some sort of tectonic fault. And there's a sort of, you know, a huge cliff that just drops, I don't know, a kilometre or 10 kilometres or something. It's an absolutely amazing landscape. So yes, so you're a new up-and-coming tourist destination, I hear, this year. So I'll have to go and visit as a tourist. 
please, this is an open invitation. And most of the world, and this is something we didn't do a good job in the past about to promote the diversity and the fascinating about our country. If you look, the perception of Saudi Arabia is full of desert, which is not the case. We have caves. Yes, we don't have rivers, but we have a lot of waterfall in the south, where I'm originally from. We have some woods, a forest, uh, mountains, fascinating sceneries and location for adventures, farmers and divers. The Red Sea is fascinating by itself. If you go there, if you are a diver or any one of the audience love to dive, they cannot miss the Red Sea destination. They will see the coral never been touched for hundreds of years. And saving the environment, this is something crucial since I'm a kid. But we've been banished if we play football in a place and we hit a tree, for example. But this is something we is planted in our culture or our habits. Yes, and thinking about watching YouTube, one of the things we started watching during the lockdown period, it's kind of escape porn, were families who are sailing around the world on a catamaran. And there's one American family called Sailing Zatara, and uh, they're one of the few who actually went uh, all the way around um, the world. Well, I mean, one of the problems of going around the world is that you either go around um, the Cape of Good Hope, which is a bit windy and the waves are a bit big, so that's a bit challenging, or you go up this sort of canal that uh, my ancestors helped organise the building of, past Egypt. And the challenge there is that you have to go around the, uh, the Horn of Africa and Somalia and there's lots of pirates there, so it's a very worrying place to go. However, they, they were the ones that, that decided to risk the, the pirates and the, they went that way. And again, one of the confounding things was that they stopped at some marinas in Saudi, which are very recent uh, marinas. They say they're beautiful, they really love the Saudi people, uh, and they had a great time there. I won't say anything out of politeness about their experience on the, on the, uh, a bit further to the west with Egypt, where they didn't have such a nice time in the marinas. But again, this is a simple example of confounding expectations, because you would think that sort of Egypt is, quotes more tourist-friendly, and that Saudi isn't so tourist-friendly, and yet they love these new marinas. I mean, they, they've been started relatively recently, I understand, but the one thing they praised was how helpful the people were in these marinas to sort things out, because naturally there's a lot of bureaucracy. I mean, there's a lot of bureaucracy anywhere in the world. I mean, catamarans turn up in Mexico, and we've seen people take three days to actually you know, be able to go on shore because of all the bureaucracy. So there's bureaucracy everywhere, but the, the particular thing they, set, they singled Saudi Arabia out for was the really friendly people. And just to finish this anecdote, they, every year now, because their kids are teenagers, one's that gone to college, but the other's between sort of 15 and 19. So they invite six kids from around the world on, on a boat, uh, on their boat with them for a few weeks to hang out. Mostly Americans, a couple of years ago that are Dutch. But this year they, they chose a, a Saudi guy as well. Mostly American, one Dutch, and then one Saudi. So yes, they absolutely fell in love with the, the country based on the little exploration they had on, on that side. So yes, it's, again, confounding expectations is my summary. One of the things we are always proud of is the hospitality. One experiment earlier this year for a traveler, he documented his trip in, within Saudi without having any money to see how people will perceive him. And he recorded, he's not a Saudi, so he drove by his car for more than, I think, 12 cities across. They paid the fuel for him. <laughs> They got the food, they invited. The minute they know you are a foreigner or you are a tourist here, you are their guest. And they feel like obliged and they do that with goodwill to 
make you feel home and happy and got a good, feel, a good feeling about your visit. But this is something we're really proud of. And I don't want to talk about it too much because I will look exaggerated. You can go and look at it in YouTube, uh, in TikTok, in Snapchat. You will find a lot of stories from Western, Asians, Africans, or Arabs. They come to Saudi just to visit as a tourist, or they live there. They live in Riyadh, for example, and they decided to travel to the north or the south. Yes, and um, just to finish on the confounding expectations. In the modern world, I despair of anybody knowing any real history as opposed to some mistake that's been repeated on Twitter many times or some trope or some woke angle. But I think even in, in my country now, there are people who don't appreciate the uh, importance of some female travellers uh, in, in Arabia in the 19th uh, century, women born in the Victorian times. And um, Freya Stark, Dame Freya Stark, went absolutely everywhere uh, and she was treated with great hospitality, even uh, by the sheikhs, uh, despite being a woman. Another one was Gertrude Bell, who provided Churchill with a very important understanding of all the local families and that in the 1921 Cairo conference, which was very seminal in terms of uh, how the Middle East was going to be organised. And then there was a lady that I didn't know about, but actually just came across recently when I found that Sadly, we'd missed a, a Royal Historical Society exhibition this year on female travellers in Arabia called Lady Anne Blunt, who's an absolutely fascinating lady I'd never heard about. For all techies concerned, uh, listening to the show, uh, she's the daughter of Ada Lovelace, who is uh, you know, well known for programming and the Ada is a language, and also for all poets listening to the show, she's the granddaughter of Lord Byron. However, um, back in the day, and this is quite a long time ago, or about 100 years ago, shall we say, give or take, she was trading with the Bedou for Arabian horses. Um, and apparently, most of the world's purebred Arabian horses that are in existence today come from her stables and her trading uh, with the sheikhs and the, the Bedou back in the day. So, yes, again, in terms of confounding expectations, it's not just today and that the 21st century is seeing Saudi Arabia, like many countries, changing. But it's that even a century ago, it never actually fitted the stereotype that you would imagine. And that's why, Mike, I told you we didn't do a lot by telling the story from our end. And this is the gap we are filling it right now for the tourist, for the hospitality, for the opportunity. Most perception about Saudi is just a rich country. It's not just a rich country because of the oil. If you look for Algeria, Iraq, Venezuela, all of them, they have oil. It's about how to manage the, the, the fortune and the wealth and the natural resources. And this is something our leadership, they're doing very well and we appreciate for that. Yes, well, that seems to lead quite nicely, almost like you've, you've thought about this one, into the whole idea of fintech and um, in particular, you're involved in the, the savings side, but we'll get to that later in the show, uh, having started with the big picture. And in terms of a little bit of history, if not the geography, it's highly relevant to an understanding of fintech in Saudi Arabia as what we've seen around the world, whether it's Nigeria or whether it's China. Technology is global. People use computers in the same languages and bits and bytes all around the world. And at that level of, should we say, electronics and above, the whole world is the same. However, when you're looking at fintech in an area, it's very much the context and how a fintech evolves is dependent upon uh, the context uh, of that country. But before we get that, maybe you'd like to let the listeners know, Nave, what your career journey is, what your background has been that led you one day to waking up in the morning and thinking, I know what I'll do today. I'll do something different. I'll form Hackbutt today. I haven't done that before. 
and then you go about forming HACPA. What, what did you do before that? And then you can let us know about what it was that led you to form HACPA. Sure. I, I started in high school as as a reporter for Tech Magazine, Arabic Tech Magazine at that time, between Byte Middle East, BC Magazine, the Arabic version, and a couple of newspapers. I continued as a reporter until I got university as an engineer in petroleum engineering. After two years, I drop off the, the, the college and I work at the bank in the cash management. So I started my career for five years in Citibank in Saudi Arabia or Saudi American Bank at that time in cash management. And the part time as a second job, I continue doing uh, IT reporter, writer, columnist. Then I had my TV show uh, specialized in technology. I hosted the late uh, Craig Barrett, the ex-chairman of Intel. I hosted twice John Chambers, the current chairman who was that time CEO of Cisco, plus ministers and uh, a lot of the youth and pioneers in the IT technology. Then after five years in cash management at Saudi American Bank, I moved to Riyadh Bank as financial risk and operational risk. I spent two years, then I cut off all the media at that time because I want to focus and shift the career into marketing communications. I moved from Riyadh Bank into marketing communications career path. I work with several industry between communication agency, airlines, I moved to ICT and it listed in Saudi stock market uh, as an IBO. I was responsible for communication at that time. Then I moved to General Electric, GE, as the head of communication in Saudi Arabia and Bahrain for another three years. Then I moved into Bauer & Water, uh, Aqua Bauer, one of the leading mainly in the clean energy across uh, the globe. After that, I been approached by BIF. In 2017, I was preparing a family trip to Euro Disney. I had three kids. Everything arranged, the hotel, travel, everything, and I go to the hospital for check, checkup. And after diagnosis, they discover I have a cancer, colon cancer, stage three. And that was a moment, everything is changed, like your life come upside down. I did, I did a surgery in the same week. They said it's urgent, everything must be dropped and paused and you do it uh, emergency, uh, the surgery immediate. I did the surgery and I got support from all my colleagues and family uh, for that. I, when I started the chemotherapy, first session, second session, the third session, I was thinking like my career was amazing, well planned, one of the rising star, but what I will leave after my death, uh, my death, what I will leave for my family, what I will leave as a legacy for my society, what will be my fingerprint, if I can say, to them. I want to start a company to provide for my family, but also will have a good impact. What kind of company? I don't want to start another agency because I will not be number one. And also the impact wasn't that clear for me. So let me start something which is a core of my experience or expertise. Financial, I'm an, I'm an ex-banker. Technology, this is my media expertise. And marketing communication, this is, will be like a vehicle or an anchor. And by the way, I completed my university degree while I was in GE. So I got a degree in 
journalism, media journalism. For that will be like the supported angle. So let me start with the fintech. Now the question is, which area of fintech? I thought about Islamic peer-to-peer lending, and part of that we developed one of the products, which is the social savings, as is existing, so we can make it digital. Then I went to one of my mentors, I show him the plan. He looked at it and he said, peer-to-peer lending is amazing, clear model, investor understand it, go for it. But forget the savings, because savings is long run and the investor don't like savings. I get that as a challenge, and they look at it from different perspective, as a blue ocean, red ocean. If no one looks at savings, which is two things, either it's there's no benefits doing business in savings, or there's a lot of gems, hidden gems, and the treasure, or like an iceberg, need to be dig and it will be useful. As an ex-banker, savings or deposits are the core of the banking. If the banks have enough deposits, they are a bank and they can do anything. They can do lending, investment, uh, securitizing, anything they'd like. So when we go dig deep into savings, personally, I found it is one of the most underestimated and undervalued area. And this is why I said, okay, hallelujah, this is it. Let's create a saving company, specialized, uh, fintech specialized in saving. And there's a lot of product and a lot of things. And the first product we launched it is a group saving or savings cooperative among individual. That was the moment for me. I'm fully covered uh, from the cancer. I'm healthy now and determined to take Hakba to the next level. Excellent. Well, we'll come on to Hakbar uh, later. And not only has Allah been kind to you, but also you have been given almost a purpose uh, in life. And having purpose is around the world a very positive force uh, for health, something, uh, some goal you're trying to reach. And congratulations on overcoming stage three. That's pretty impressive. So without diving into the sector of savings per se, let's take a, a step back and look at finance in Saudi Arabia context, um, and then in particular, when fintech started, what the sectors are, uh, why it started, you know, what, what are the sort of various angles. So as we were saying, the sort of history is perhaps poorly understood. Uh, Saudi Arabia is quite a uh, young country, uh, formed less than a century ago in the modern form. I think Arabia has probably been there for 100 million years or ever since the, the continent started, stopped moving around. But I think a lot of that, some, quite a bit of that, the Sahara Desert wasn't a desert. So I think Arabia had um, a different sort of... Uh, a geology, but sure. let's put that to one side. We can't cover everything in the, in the podcast. <laughs> and actually, just in passing, in terms of uh, history lesson, there may be uh, listeners out there around the world who don't realise that Saudi Arabia means the Arabia of the Al Sauds, the royal family, the kingdom of the, the Al Sauds, the, the Saudi Arabia. And so, and this is very relevant to savings later, but just more for context, roughly speaking, in terms of these. Uh, women I'm talking about who are going around late 19th century, early 20th century. It's on a camel everywhere. You say it's not all desert, and that's quite right, but you do have quite a lot of sand, and more sand than, than yes. we have by quite, quite a long way. And Thesiger was another one um, travelling across the peninsula. So the basic infrastructure was pretty non-existent outside um, a few major cities. Correct. And uh, with the unification uh, under the Sauds in 1932, it was really the very early start of what we might call a modern com- country. But even then, going back to my prior incarnation, I was fortunate enough to have lunch with one of the Saudi princes, of whom there were, 
there were more than one or two, but I had lunch with a, a quite important Saudi prince, and uh, he was telling me the story that when he was a, a child, one of his brothers died because they didn't have a refrigerator in the desert to keep the, literally to keep the medicines cool. Now this is a senior prince in the royal family, and when he was a child, this is the 80s, so you can work out when that would have been, when he was a child, even the royal family didn't have enough refrigerators. So um, sure. it was a, a very harsh environment and very difficult even for the wealthiest of people. And then, of course, as we know, in the 1970s, the oil price went up a bit. Uh, and then suddenly there's this massive change and this massive acceleration of, of everything. So you've got a very different background. And just in the same way that as when we did Alipay with China, what's happening in fintech in China is very distinct from elsewhere because go back to, let's say, say, I mentioned the 1980s, go back to the 1980s, there wasn't really consumer lending in China. <laughs> the economy didn't, didn't work that way. So just start with a little bit of context. When would you say, as a Saudi, that finance per se, in terms of banks and these city groups and all these things came? Did it sort of suddenly appear out of nowhere in the, in the 70s and 80s because money appeared and, and banks ran after the money? Uh, or, or is it older than that? If you look for financial system in Saudi, when the central bank established... That's around, if my memory remember that right, around 50s, early. Everything starts with pilgrims. So because we have the holy city Mecca and all Muslims, pilgrims, they come. The Dutch or Netherlands, they started the first uh, banks or not a bank, actually, it's a branch just to exchange the currency between pilgrims from far Asia, uh, Indonesia, Malaysia and the others. Uh, when they arrived to Mecca. And there's where they started the exchange and the payments. The, the first law for the Saudi currency is 1928, at that time when the Saudi Rial was minted with the size. After that, the late king ordered to establish a central bank, and it's headed by an Saudi, Mr. George Blewers. So if you look, we don't afraid or hesitate to go with the expertise or any additional help outside someone who can help or who can establish some things. And because of this, pilgrims every year and Muslims visiting Mecca every year from all around the world with different currencies, currency exchange was the first real monetization or transactions heavily happened in Mecca and all the way around it. And that was the root of the financial systems. From the early days until now, central bank play like a crucial role to keep it controlled and safe. And they established their own, or the country, national remittance system. Not separate from Visa, MasterCard, and international brands. We have it called MADA, which is allow the Saudi Rial or any compatible uh, currency or network to deal with. It's controlled and all around the, the, all around the country. That's helped them even to go with the cashless and to achieve the cashless target society seven years ahead of the scheduled. The infrastructure is there. If you look for the banking system in Saudi, I might say something, it looks obvious to you, but just imagine all the transfer up to 4,000 pound 4, can be immediate received regardless day or night. Above the 4,000 pound or 5,000 pound, regardless of the limit, if it's before 3 p.m. Saudi time, it will receive the same day. Is it after 3 p.m., it will receive the early next day. 
Now you can transfer, and this is across all banks, not about some bank advance or the second bank is not advanced, is came and pushed from the Saudi payment system uh, network, MEDA. So I can transfer with the mobile without knowing uh, the full name. You can transfer to your network, and this is only from transfer. The cybersecurity, on the other hand, is really high and applicable to all banks, mandatory. But the health and the well infrastructure established in the financial system is advanced, way advanced than many countries. Yes, and so this is a good example of a country where um, the banking system in the current format uh, is relatively new, um, and therefore it hasn't been sort of locked into sort of ancient ways of Legacy. doing things. Exactly, unlike this country where we've had sort of banking in pretty much a similar format for centuries, and therefore it's a bit harder to move. So moving on from the sort of context of finance and how it's developed in the kingdom, when would you in your terms uh, say that from your perspective, fintech started appearing in, in Saudi Arabia? And by fintech, I generally mean the new phenomenon such as new providers, such as uh, Hakba. Uh, I don't mean people used computers in the 1960s, which sometimes is inter interpreted. Right. When did you start see, seeing it? When you think, oh, there's, there's a fintech. I mean, in my case, I think I hadn't heard the word in early 2014. So, Look, in Saudi, we say the government or the central bank and the capital market authority, I can tell in 2018. In one year, for example, in 2017, when I start exploring and give a call to central bank asking about, for example, peer-to-peer -peer limits, establishing a new fintech, I'm still a stranger for them. In 2018, the next year, they are the one who pushed uh, for more fintech and more innovation in different angles. They created a sandbox. They created a sandbox, environmental uh, fintech in central bank, and another sandbox, environmental and capital market authority. So anything with stock market or capital market, there's CMA or capital market authority. Anything with uh, the financial system is not capital market, like lending, uh, uh, prop tech, uh, wallet, uh, wealth management, anything under the central bank. So 2018 is the real year where they started even to accept the first batch in the sandbox. Hakba we being accepted in the second batch, which is during the pandemic, 2020, we get accepted. Uh, and recently, they announced it will not be more batches. It will be open all the year. So you can apply at any day, the entire year, and they will review the applicants or the application and will give you either yes or work on it and come back with those things need to be complied. Excellent. Well, I mean, one of the things we didn't have time to discuss along with roughly everything is the fact that the way that the Saudi economy is structured is it's heavily, you've got a very large size of, of the state. Let me cover from fintech side, Mike, very quickly, from the fintech side. And this is one thing uh, I see it fascinating. When you look for fintech ecosystem in Saudi, there's a national strategy for it and it's announced. There's eight governmental entities they are all supporting this initiative, which means you will not struggle if, I, if I'm with SAMA, I'm not struggling, for example, with Ministry of Commerce, or I'm not struggling with Ministry of Investment. They're all in this one initiative, and they have goals, more than 11 initiatives and uh, six drivers to support that initiatives with the clear goals, which means if you, ha if you are a founder and you are investors, this is the right place to start your fintech, 
or the right place to invest in fintech. You have all the government support. It's not just, it's not financially, but it's what you really need from regulation, from uh, ease of doing business, and from the market size. Exactly. So in that way, it's a, almost the antithesis of um, uh, the UK, where um, certainly 20 years ago, we were still somewhat traditional. In 2005, Zopo, just a bunch of people got together and created peer-to-peer because why not? Because that's the kind of thing that people do. And then, you know, 10 years later, it sort of got spread a bit more widely and then more recently. But it, it spread simply because people were doing their own thing as they always have here. And then regulators turn up and then the government turns up and says, oh, we're going to support this. And, you know, there's a, there's a fr- phrase, and I'm sure it works all around the world, uh, success has many fathers, failures and orphan. So suddenly politicians here get involved later. But actually, it's, it's the opposite way around, as we've heard in other countries, where the central states says, look, actually, we need to get with the 21st century uh, and, and use technology to make financial services um, better. Um, and what that gives you is a much fast, faster 0 to 60 uh, speed of taking off, unlike here where it took off very slowly because there was no support. So you've got this very positive regulatory environment and ecosystem. And if uh, 2018 was the seminal year, uh, five years later, we're recording this late in 2023, what would you say the major verticals are within fintech uh, in Saudi Arabia? You've mentioned, going back to the banking, foreign exchange, uh, you've mentioned payments, you've mentioned savings, but what are the the main areas? Um, I was about to say, that'd be very inappropriate, let's say if you get together at a drinks party, that won't work in Saudi. Uh, if you get together for coffee morning, um, or whatever the, the um, <laughs> effective equivalent is in, in, in where people will, um, just get together uh, and chat or uh, have seminars, on fintech, what would be the major subdivisions of the program? Oh, at t- 10 o'clock we've got savings and at 11 o'clock we've got payments. What are, what are the key areas within fintech? And the key area is, number one is payment and wallet in Saudi. And you have buy now, pay later. They have a huge penetration from the number of users to the size and prop tech. And one of the raising or the upcoming very fast in the growing or the most growing in the past three years savings, not just because Hakiba is one of them, but this one of the most growing domain. For those are the domains or verticals in the fintech in Saudi Arabia, they have the most. In Saudi, there's around 130 fintech right now. Uh, and those 130, as of 2030, the target is to be 525 by 2030. And this is the commitment, which means they still need to double it, actually more than triple it, in the next seven years. Excellent. Well, one of the things we touched on the history of uh, relevance is that history does shape the modern world. And as you say, pilgrims have been coming to Mecca for a long time. And so that shaped uh, the needs and what needed to be provided. And in terms of savings, let's just start with that as it's your area. As I was mentioning, in 1923, the tribes in the area your wealth would have been stored in camels and how many camels you had was pretty much a sign of wealth. And then suddenly you get this massive acceleration in the 1970s and, and suddenly Saudis or many Saudis become the richest people in the world and, and all that and there's massive wealth. So that must, from a cultural perspective, means that it's quite a, a challenge because it's not like countries where your great-grandparents would tell you, save money when you're young because you'll need it later. Because you save camels, but you must get so much money from oil, you can't just invest it all in camels or Arabian horses. So what happens to a culture that undergoes this phenomenal phase shift in wealth from literally being subsistence 
to massive wealth. Within a family, where does your culture of savings come from? Because I assume your grandmother, your grandfather, didn't say to you when you were long, young, make sure you save lots of, lots of money, because there was never that much money around a century ago. Okay, there's a phrase, very well known, say, like, spend what's in your pocket, and God or assistances from the God. Always will come, but don't worry about tomorrow. That's where the savings or the shortened savings come from. And with the quick uh, and rapid transformation of the country to the high wealth and education, constructions, all of that coming so fast, people go to rely more into lending and their paycheck. That's why it will be shocking to you and the audience if you know more than 70% of Saudis they don't have emergency savings at all. At all. Which is insane. If you look at it from another perspective, savings is not necessarily for retirement because they rely on the governmental program for pension funds. To cover that, it worked previously. Now they're still challenging. We don't think it's part of the behavior, part of the culture. You don't think to save so you can enjoy the life after retirement. You want to enjoy work and live the life every year, year by year. So that's create a subdomain, if I can say it, or label it, save to spend, short-term savings. You save to get married. You save to buy a car. You save to travel. You save to get X, Y, Z, to buy a Louis Vuitton or Hermes bag. That's where the culture is, and that's where we tackle and we focus on, which is short savings to create a new habit. So we are not tackling a 10 years savings, because if you go to any Saudis or anyone in Arab world in general, talk to them about a pension plan in 20 years or 15 years, he will not listen to you. They don't want something too far unforeseen for them. So that's fine. Let's start with what is your goal in two years, in one year, two years, up to three years, and let's work on that. When we talk about savings group, and just to explain it, Mike, for the audience, it's the traditional habits. This is existing in more than 60 countries around the world, from Southern America and Mexico to Africa, Nigeria, and other country, to Asia and India and Malaysia and Southern China with different names. They call it Rosca, they call it Tanda, they call it Isusu, Shit Fund, uh, C, C-H-I-T, or Committee, or Jamia in Arab world, Jamia. This is the savings group, and people do that part of solidarity. They save together, and each month, one of them receive the full amount, of the full of the cycle. So at the end of this group, or the cycle duration of this group, no one owns anyone anything. There's a very famous British scenery, I saw it a couple of times, where the one guy or one actor told his friend in the scene, you owe me five pounds. He said, okay. Then he got to borrow a five pounds from someone. And this five pounds flow around five people in the room and they close debt from each other. At the end, no one owns anyone anything. The concept is money flow, needed versus time. If we manage that well, 
no one will be in debt or at least will manage his money or the cash management very well. This is about cash management or treasury management based on the needs. So if we are a group and we have students, he need to pay his university tuition this month. I need to pay my rent next month. You need to buy uh, to pay your car uh, installment next month or to buy a new car next month. So we know exactly what is the need. So we can participate in a group. Instead of you go individual to the bank and get a loan or you go to ask a lending from your family, what is the difference? There's a social, big social impact here. Because the last one is the must saver. The first one is the lender. So I can save my money with the bank, but it will be only me and the bank. Or I can save it with myself at the home <laughs> under the pillow, but that will be only you. When you're saving with a group, you impact to those group because you fulfill their needs without losing your money. And that's the beauty of it. Yes, so that's a, an interesting model. And hearing you talk, it reminds me that well, when I started in the city, having mentioned the 80s, um, there were such things called building societies and they were different from banks. Um, and building societies were a very similar idea. They were, okay, they had interest involved in it, but a community, they were local, like Norwich Building Society or Peterborough Building Society or Coventry Building Society. People in those towns would deposit money with the building society and the building society would lend them the money for buying a house um, predominantly. Exactly. So it was a, a mutual savings origin in the same way that the main origin of insurance was uh, a mutual scheme, for example, amongst Swiss farmers in case one of your cows got struck by lightning and you'd all put money in together um, into a pot. And I've given up following the, uh, the, the prognosis for derivatives and Western currencies this year. I'll start again looking at it more seriously next year. But if, for the sake of argument, this inverted pyramid of interest-based debt blows up um, in the West and we have to start with completely new currencies, then the rational and sane way will be to go back to systems where people help each other out rather than uh, rather than banks. And as I've said many times on the podcast, I was very impressed by Iceland, who come the GFC in 2008, bankrupted the banks, not the people. And I was not impressed by the US or the UK, who bankrupted the people, um, not uh, the banks. So there's one minor matter in this communal arrangements, as you will have noticed, which is that depending on quite how it's structured, and you said there are many varieties in different parts of the world, you kind of have to trust everybody else, don't you? Like, it's like we've got one piggy bank for my avenue, and we, we, it's the avenue piggy bank, and we all put our money in there, and we have to trust that someone doesn't take it all out. And so how does the element of trust work? And the, that sounds like a silly example, but it isn't necessarily because the whole of finance depends on trust. If everybody went to the banks in London and took the money out, the banks would disappear because they don't have it. So all finance depends on trust one way or another. So how does it work in the case? Yeah. And let's just take Hakbar as an example. How does it work in the case of Hakbar? If I'm a Saudi and I put money into Hakbar, am I having to trust anybody? Am I have to trust you? Or am I to have to trust the other depositors? How does it work? In Hakbar, Hakbar is the guarantor. But let me talk about the people. Muhammad Yunus, the Nobel Prize uh, winner for the economy, with he gave us an example about the low default rate in Bangladesh with the bank lending the, the poor people. Because people trust other people 
by default. Yes, there's a couple of examples, but people trust other people. They don't want to harm other, to do harm to other people. In Hakba, for example, and this is a real story I'm telling you, because we told them we are just a platform. So this money is from you, Mike, to Alex, for example, is nothing to go with Hakba. So if you delay or default it, you will affect him. People assure that will never, not happen. They think if there's Hakba in the middle, Hakba can cover that. So they can take their time and they will pay off, they will pay you in three, four months later. But when you told them, I'm not in the middle, they come more assurance to pay on time and to commit. Our default rate, now we are three years operating, our default rate is less than 1%, less than 0.7 actually. And this is really low. That's very impressive and it's a, it's a good example where, in terms of localism, the value of culture is there. And again, hearing you speak, um, I was recalling the fact that for three centuries in this country, companies paid all their debts that didn't go bankrupt. Limited liability didn't exist. There was, the, the stock exchange which was formed centuries ago, its word was, and it still, still, happened, still was a case in the 1980s um, before Big Bang, my word is my bond. I still, people of my generation, my background, still live by my word is my bond in this country. That has been replaced amongst younger generations by more American, you know, what does the contract say and you've got lawyers and all that kind of thing. But ultimately, it is about trust. So we've touched on that. We'll, we'll hear a little bit more about Hackbar and the dessert course. So very briefly, it's very fascinating. And we spent a lot of time on the context. And I think it's really important to understand the context uh, rather than the bits and the bites, because the bits and the bites are the same around the world. But Saudi Arabia is one of the ones that I put my money on to be surviving in 50 years. I wouldn't put my money on Britain to be surviving in 50 years, if only because Saudi Arabia, like China, like Russia, like India, are civilization states. They know what their raison d'etre is. They know what their purpose is. They know what they stand for. We stand for um, not a lot at the moment. That's a separate story. Anyway, in the future of fintech in Saudi Arabia, where do you see things going in the next five years? If we do a follow-up episode in five years' time, what kind of things are you imagining uh, will have happened in the meantime? We'll see a lot of innovation in area away from crypto, where it was like a lot of focus globally on it in the past three years. But if you look for what's coming, I think it will be in several areas. Definitely savings one of it, but also payment, prop tech. We'll find innovation where people can do transaction and they trust and they deal with trust with strong infrastructure and clarity. When I say innovation, Mike, we talk about, for example, savings for away from pensions or for more modern way to do savings for pension. We see a lot of pension funds struggle and suffer. And some uh, savers, they lost part of their money, which is an area need a lot of innovation. And we are addressing that. You will see innovation not just into payments, but where can you do transaction and how you can do a transaction. And if it's to not be only currency by currency, you can do a lot of transaction by valuation your assets, regardless is it a digital asset or is it a physical asset, is it your work as a freelancer. It's hard to imagine, but 
what I can see and I believe, we have a lot of good roots on the right path and we're accelerating that. That's why when I established Hakba, Hakba by itself is not something out of the blue. It's people doing that, let's digitalize it and make innovation to the next level. And then we package it and combine it to something else. But innovation definitely will come with where the people use most, for example, for pilgrims, for travelers, for specific industry, traders, farmers, they have specific needs and they need a specific solution to answer it, which is the banks, the current fintech, they don't serve them well. Excellent. Well, that's been a fascinating um, overview of a very interesting area. And um, as you say, the rate of change will continue. And I look forward to seeing myself how it develops. But before I wrap up the show, I'd like to thank all you listeners out there. In particular, special shout out this week for my Saudi listeners and my brand partners for the podcast. Smart is transforming pensions and retirement worldwide. Their leading edge retirement tech platform propelled them success in the UK. Now they're operating on four continents and working with partners like Zurich and JP Morgan. Find out more at www.smart.co. Thenistedboard.com, your guide to entrepreneurial governance and how you can start making your board an engine of growth today. So, Naif, thank you very much for your overview um, of Pintech in Saudi Arabia. And you've mentioned um, the core sort of simple sketch of the uh, Hakba model uh, in terms of drawing on the whiteboard. Um, more specifically, uh, what would you like to let uh, the listeners uh, out there know in terms of what products you're providing for whom? Are you just in Saudi Arabia at the moment? Are you going to be expanding elsewhere? Um, not just that uh, commercial stuff today, um, but what do you need to be more what do you need more of tomorrow to be bigger and better than you are today? Sure, thank you, Mike, for that. We are in Saudi because, and there's no plan to go out of, out of Saudi for the next two years because we didn't cover the market yet, very simply, in a simple way. And I'm not a founder who fascinating just to go outside or cross-border for the sake of expansion. Uh, we bought a strategy for where to go next between Middle East or the Europe. The model of cooperative saving or social savings, it's a global model. Even for Western, when you talk about the second generation immigrants in the UK, they are using that and they're using this traditionally in uh, their communities. It's there. And we will address that very soon in the next uh, three to five years if it's not sooner, it depends on the growth and the speed of the growth uh, for that. For Saudi Arabia, we are targeting underbanked mainly, and almost 40% of our customers are underbanked. And we talk about underbanked, we talk about housewives, freelancers, university students, even employees with small and medium companies. They are not well served by the banks. And those are our focus and our target audience to grow with them and to give them access to finance or access to fund and manage their uh, cash well. That's where we're heading and that's what we're focusing with creating an impact for their goals. So they can live with an assurance or with a better financial literacy, not from investment side, that's not our thing, but from the savings side, the access to fund when they need it, buy they need it, and to give him even a barter deal. When you say a barter deal, we can talk about the travel industry, for example. So 
20% of our customers, they do savings for travel. So we can give them a better deal with one or two uh, travel agent, and that will give them even a better value for their savings. So they're not losing uh, with inflation or by not buying their uh, ticket. It's, there's a lot of value, and we just touch the surface or scratch the surface. Well, thank you very much that indeed. And if listeners have taken away nothing else other than a simple message at a high level, which is that a lot is happening in Saudi Arabia now from being able to take your indeed. catamaran there to people choosing it as a destination for honeymoon. And as we've heard over my lifetime and over yours, Nave, Saudi Arabia has changed radically as a country. This leads to all kinds of interesting opportunities as well as challenges in terms of having to provide things like savings cultures and all that. So I'm sure it's a fascinating place to be working and I can't imagine anything other than the next five years will be extremely exciting for all those fintechs in Saudi Arabia. So thank you very much for that, Naif, and I wish you, Akbar and Saudi Arabia, every success in the future. Appreciate it. Thank you. And uh, thanks again for you and all the audience for this lovely hour. Thanks for listening. If you are in need of a non-executive or advisory director with deep expertise, experience and contacts in the worlds of both traditional FS and fintech or unique insight into how to make your board an engine of growth today, contact me at mike at mikeballiman.com. If you just need one-off advice in these areas via clarity.fm slash mikeballiman. We could sit in a bender all day Watching the firelight dance, watching the firelight dance We could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride, watching a happy moon ride Watch the fire light dance with me, 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 watch the fire light dance with me,